Hello and welcome to the very 122nd Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, the podcast all about board games, board games, and the people who love them. Yes, that's right, the board game people. On today's show, it is me, Matt Lees, joined by Quentin Smith. Hello, Matt Lees. And Tom Brewster. Hello, Matt Lees. (laughs) Nice, my name. Please don't wear it too roughly. So, we're going to be talking about Zestreya. The strange game of buying and selling daughters, mariposas, a game of butterflies and the generations and the inevitable death of animals and everything. Sumatra, a lovely holiday in which you're going to be uh, putting together a grid of memories in your holiday memory book. Just normal holiday stuff. Maglev Metro is the future. There are robots now. Maybe there will be humans in the future, but for now, mainly robots. Fleet, the dice game. Boats, shrimps, lots and lots and lots of boxes, and twa dice, a game of not one dice, not two dice, not three dice, but probably more than three dice in the French place of twa. I have been playing a little game called Zestreya, and this is literally a little game. It's a very small card game, um, and it's designed by Patiu Alexandru and Horatiu Roman, who are both Romanian, and it is a game about being Romanian. Um, This is also, just to pique your interest, a negotiation game, and it has absolutely gorgeous art by Maria Serducan. In Zestreya, players are sort of village heads in kind of, I I, I don't know, Romania at some point in history. I don't know a lot about Romania, but basically uh, what you've got here is a game about arranged marriages, okay? So on your turn, everyone starts with one couple in their village, as you are the village heads, And that couple may or may not make you money and may or may not have a kid who may or may not be a boy. Um, And that's relevant because in traditional arranged Romanian marriages, uh, if you have girls who you want to arrange marriages with, once you arrange that marriage, that girl will go away to the husband's village, which will allow them to generate more money and kids for that village, but not for you. So Zestreya, quite simply, is a negotiation game of saying, who will marry my daughter? And then someone says, oh, I have a single boy. And then you go, okay, pay me this much money. And you're negotiating how much money you get from uh, from these marriages. The tricky thing that is such a simple rule and obviously models real life is that the gender of your kid comes from this enormous deck, far bigger than a small game would ordinarily need. But that deck has to be big so that consistently from start to finish, whether you give birth to a boy or a girl is random. And then that produces... A, a weird, weird economic negotiation game because the value of women or the value of men is entirely warped by how many men and or women there are in the game. Um, and then also on top of this simple negotiation thing, you have a lot of take that elements, um, you know, a lot of cards that you know allow you to pick someone's prized daughter and say, did you know she is ugly? Or did you know this man is a loner? Or, you know, there's even some sort of LGBT sort of stuff in the game because you can play cards on people that say, you know what, they're just going to be single for their whole lives or they want to marry in a different arrangement. Um, and it is, well, I'll ask you to. Does this sound like a fun concept for a game? It sounds a bit weird, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, please uh, uh, walk me through your problems with this. I, I just, I don't know. I just think like a negotiation game where you're, you know, trying to, offer money in exchange for basically 
people. human kind of yeah yeah it's making me question uh i mean i guess i've never really been a huge fan of the concept of arranged marriage but i don't know if it's a fun setting for me yes so i found i mean this this question immediately came up in our gaming group um but the thing is is that this is a game made by romanians looking at a very traditional aspect of their culture it was something that the designers clearly thought was fun enough or interesting enough to share with the world so whether it's problematic enough oh so whether it's problematic enough whether it's problematic <laughs> is uh shut up and sound of course only covers games that are a certain amount of problematic but not too much it's not true. Um, but yeah, it raises an interesting question. If you are sort of made uncomfortable by this arrangement, um, you know, obviously no one's saying you have to play as Australia, but it felt like, I don't know, the game felt like an opportunity to explore something that other designers would not ever touch. Um, it felt interesting to me. Uh, anyway, I won't be talking about it for very long because it's not a particularly uh, great game. It, it, it's, it's kind of very much a kickstarter game where it looks absolutely gorgeous has a concept that's absolutely unique and quite simply uh, is not balanced the one thing i'll say about it before we move on because i really just wanted to share it as an interesting concept for a game is that for a negotiation game where you are expected to be you know a real hard ass about like you know one coin because this game uses very small integers you know a, a good you know thing that you might be selling your or getting a dowry for your daughter for is like three coins a bad deal might be two coins we're, we're dealing with really small numbers sure. here but then the game has all kinds of event cards and take that cards, which, you know, take away two, three, four coins. And that means that, I mean, it's just simply a horrible combination. You're expecting me to sort of really work hard and sweat and be mean to my friends to get one extra coin, but I could randomly lose three or four coins based on the play of a card. Um, was not... Uh, was I, mean, not I guess it, it, it sounds like a lighthearted and fun game poking fun at the the comedic possibilities of arranged marriage that is, is exactly what it is matt Thank which is for... like yeah okay <laughs> but yeah i think it's one of those interesting things where it's the nature of um it's the nature of you know commercial enterprises being global and culture being local is one of these things of being like yeah maybe this is your you know part of your culture and your life and your tradition then this might be something that's really fun and light but um it's not for me i don't think it sounds yeah, a bit I... like um ladies and gentlemen to some extent i don't know about that oh I think, really uh, yeah i think it's interesting like i i think that i'm kind of there was a discussion recently between tom vassal and quinn's um during the online convention we did and i, I think i'm still stand where quinn's does of it being it's not i don't think that's an entirely like straight reflection of, of cultural values i think it's looking back on that period uh, with a kind of tongue-in-cheek um not necessarily like glowing eye towards it and i think that there's there's mechanics and features within the game that that emphasize that and make it clear that it's like this is not supposed to be viewed as something that's just like haha isn't this f funny in a basic way but you know again I think it's open to you know discussion i think What's quite interesting is where the two games do differ is that both are looking at a historical and cultural practice and not necessarily saying it's good. But in Ladies and Gentlemen, you win that game by, you know, having a wife who's the most well-dressed wife at a party, which is just such an absurd sort of goal. Whereas in Zestrea, you win by making money. And it's whoever right, has right. the most money at the end of the game, which is... It's a very small change, but it does mean that the entire game has you sort of 
I suppose, being less humorous in your in your dealings because you really do want to arrange marriages and get rich doing it, right. which is, I suppose, less sort of um, less lighthearted than ladies and gentlemen. Well, we're going to be awful to each other all in the name of a party. Mm. Yeah, I feel like that's the thing with with ladies and gentlemen is it's you know it's not even the best game, but it's it's I think it lends itself mechanically. It's just absurd, and it does just it does frame the entire setting and the cultural setting of it as just a matter of absurdity, in my view, anyway. The fact that you know the trading that the men do all day is just nonsense, boondoggling, really. Yeah, and, and the fact that you know you you buy and sell servants, really, like if, uh, servants cost less money than a handbag, and it's just <laughs> it's it's kind of feels very tongue in cheek and just pointing out that it's just stupid. Um, I will, which, yeah. I, but just before we move on, because I don't want to talk about Zestrea for long, because I just thought it was interesting, but not necessarily something I'd recommend to people. But uh, I did have a very good moment when we had one player around our table who had a bunch of women, which is ordinarily a, a horrible scenario to be in, because um, you need sort of married couples to work the land, supposedly, according to this game. But um, then that player played a card that said pickle business and enabled you to make money from all of the women you have who sort of came together in this collective to actually just start a business pickling stuff, <laughs> which immediately turned that player into a power player within our Romanian community, uh, a real pickle power player. Uh, so that's Zestrea. Matt, what have you been playing? I've played a little game called Mariposas, which people might have heard of. It's a game of butterflies and their journey along the eastern but areas of North America. Let's start that again. Is that the sound of butterflies? <laughs> What's that noise, Matt? Well, that's the noise of butterflies because I've been playing Mariposas, a game of basically butterflies having a journey in which, unfortunately, many of them will die. But don't worry because that's just normal. It's what happens to everything. This is a game designed by Elizabeth Hargrave. I'm amazed that no one's interrupted me to, you know, congratulate me on my incredible butterfly impression at the start of this segment. I, I'm too. With that. I'm all inside my own head because I know a really good fact about uh, butterfly migration, but I'll wait until. The end of the segment to, no, that's, wow, that's like I'm that really not room. sure that's the noise they make. <laughs> It's like there's butterflies in. If you're listening to this on headphones, do not be alarmed. There's not actually butterflies in your ears. They didn't sneak it's just in me. there. They didn't get all trapped when you no. took them off at the train station to get on a train and you were waiting for the announcements and you took them out and a butterfly got in there. That's not what's happening I'm not, right now. I'm not no. uh, espousing this at all, but in some kind of weird world, how much would you two have to be paid to eat a butterfly? Zero. Uh, um, sorry, carry on. Z sorry, zero? <laughs> you know what? This got, <laughs> this got really dark fast. Matt, tell us about Mariposas. I don't Mariposas. like this. Okay, so this is a game designed by Elizabeth Hargrave, designer of Wingspan, a game that I liked. And uh, yeah, uh, the Quinns liked a bit, but not as much. Fair. That's fine. Um, and it's basically a quite colourful game of set collection and floating about and going on a bit of a journey. Now, the way that the game works is you're going to start off with these Generation 1 butterflies, and you're going to play from cards in your hand. And there's not many cards. It's a very simple little card thing. If you play little cards, which will then allow you to move your butterflies by certain numbers of spaces, and it might be like a two and a three, which means you can move one butterfly, two spaces, and then three spaces, or two different ones, 
a two and then a three, however you want. It's very flexible. And it's very flexible in terms of how you move around in regards to other players as well. Like you can go to the same spaces as other people. You can just follow each other around. There's no like limit on how many butterflies can be in a space. Um, so there's not really any uh, super hard competitiveness there, which is nice. And the way it works is you start off down in Mexico, you move up along the, uh, the coast of America into North America. And the idea is you want to stop at these kind of feeding spots along the way, um, which is, again, like a lot of this has been designed with butterflies in mind. And I mean, not literally, it's not like the game itself is going to benefit butterflies. I don't, I don't think, think the butterfly market is particularly big on board games either. Listen, this is designed by butterflies for butterflies. <laughs> uh, basically, there are these little feeding stations, which are real things that people around America leave so that the um, monarch butterflies, when they're going on the migration, can have little places to stop and to, you know, get some food and rest have and a pint. generate to help them on their journey. Have a pint, basically, yeah. Mm. And what you need to do is when you move, each of the spaces in the game has a flower icon on it. Then you're going to take one of the little flower tokens and then by collecting different sets of tokens, you can spend them to do things. Um, and you spend them to to create new butterflies via a method I believe is commonly known as breeding. Um, and then there, yeah, there are certain spaces where you can do some breeding and you can create a new generation of butterflies. And then these feeding stations, when you get to one, you're going to flip it over. And on the other side of it, there's going to be a symbol and a color. And there's, there's kind of a board that goes to the side of the, the main board, which has um, the four different things you can find, like a little seedling thing, a little cocoon, a little caterpillar. I almost said like a little Pokemon, but it's like, no, <laughs> they, they, they didn't invent bugs. Um, and then a butterfly. And then basically the idea is you want to try and get as far as you can up the board, um, do some objective stuff, which are public shared objectives that might be like, you know, get really far to the West or whatever. They're, they're very specific, but, and then get back to Mexico at the end with your fourth generation butterflies. So the neat thing about this, this game is the fact that the generational element of it really does it does work like it does feel like a journey and it's it's got a nice flow to it and the fact that you take out your first generation butterflies and then you breed and have some second generation some third but then you need to start thinking about then coming back and the fact that the first generation butterfly when you move into the second phase of the game they're all going to die and then the second ones die and third oh, ones die. Cool. So the, the butterflies that come back at the end are not the same butterflies um that left at the start because because that's the nature of how it works in real life you know the butterflies that come back will have never been to where they're going back to. That slightly bleak point might be a good time for me to reveal my good butterfly fact about Do it. Go, 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 go. So um, there are, scientists didn't understand why when migrating, um, these, these huge clouds of butterflies would go around, like they would take a huge detour, miles and miles and miles and miles, um, and to go around this one spot. And they figured out that it's because there used to be a mountain there, which has like long since been eroded <laughs> and it's now flat and you can fly over it. But the sort of generational knowledge of the butterflies, they do this huge detour because they have always done it that way, even though they don't need to anymore. Idiots. Which unbelievable. It's kind, of, so it's kind of symbolic for how Idiot humans do everything. Fool butterflies. <laughs> Why even, can't they get it right? Can't even see a big silly mountain. 
Tell you what, though, I, I really like the high concept of a race where you have to like breed your race drivers at different <laughs> points. <laughs> that came out weird. I meant, D, like the idea- whole new game. <laughs> oh my god, I'm, I'm, in, I'm into that as well. But no, I just mean like the idea that you start with a small group and then you could have more races at a certain point. Is, is that it's, sort of yeah? I mean, that is that is how it works. In the fact that really, um, you do have a limited pool initially, initially of how many butterflies you can make on the board. But as the game goes on you do have the capacity to to make not loads but quite a few i think the interesting thing about it is the fact that you know that some of them are not going to exist for much longer so you think well you know this second generation one or these two second generation ones i have are literally just going to disappear at the end of the next round but often will be replaced one of them will be replaced by a third generation one so it's not a complete wash um but it means that where you decide to actually kind of breed and make another butterfly is really important um and when you decide to do it is really important in terms of being like well you know do i want to make a fourth generation butterfly really far out on the other side of the board so it's really it's an interesting question of when to start coming home when to start moving back and also accepting that you know you think well somebody's flipped over that set collection red token that i want to get to get all four of them so i'll just send off my second generation butterfly to go and get it because they they don't need to come back because they're going to die which is kind of, that's kind of weird like that's kind of like that's <laughs> that's something where conceptually it doesn't quite hang together but uh, <laughs> um uh, but despite the fact that it has a nice flow i think it does what it sets out to do quite nicely of of being a game that feels like it's mimicking this generational journey of these butterflies um i didn't really love it i didn't love it for a couple of reasons um first of all it's very colorful in some regards but i also felt like some of the art design didn't really land mechanically as well as it could have done um it's very cool to have this striking black board with the bright colors for the actual thing but it's a bit visually messy um and the illustrations of the flowers are lovely but maybe iconography wise not as good as they could be in terms of trying to find things the person i was playing with kind of sometimes got the wrong flowers in ways which is like yeah, kind of understandable um and also this is a big board and the sideboard you have for the kind of set collection stuff and the objectives is big it's a real table hog of a thing and i felt like it wasn't you know it's the weird promise of a thing it didn't feel like a really big table game um i felt like it was something quite nice and light and i would have liked to just see it be a little bit less encroaching and again when you're looking at a scale like this quins won't be happy to hear it's a little card game the cards you're the cards are the game you're playing these cards to move the butterflies and they're tiny little cards and you know f- really for a game which is all about these butterflies flying around and it's just a shame that your your only real interaction uh with the game is 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 small it's it just felt like it felt like it wasn't strong enough and exciting enough to to let me forgive some of that stuff but i felt the mechanics were held back a little bit by the production choices and that's my opinions about mariposas tom and i played a new game from the one and only true and living doctor reiner knizia uh we played sumatra which is published by ludanova and matt i'm gonna ask you do you want to go on a nice holiday to sumatra uh i don't know where it is but i so badly yes 
Oh, sugar. I'm actually, I, I forgot. It's, it's in Indonesia. It's in Indonesia. Thanks. <laughs> uh, so it's in Indonesia. Um, I, my research tells me that. And um, so what we, <laughs> I love Indonesia. And you can stop in Singapore Airport where they have a butterfly sanctuary. Oh, my wow. goodness. And uh, both so... these games are just kind of fine. So, you know, it all works <laughs> together in one nice big. Timothy Brewster, stop okay, revealing the. Uh, so yeah, Tom is right. It's not. It's not amazing. I wouldn't recommend anyone buy Sumatra, but as a concept, I thought it was super interesting. So um, this is uh, a sort of game that models a holiday in on the Indonesian island of Sumatra, which has incredible biodiversity and supposedly looks nice. I don't know, um, but the way the game plays is pretty fascinating. So you've got a board, which is really just a track. You're going to be, and everyone gets a little pawn that represents their tourist. And you're going to be walking from where the boat drops you off all the way around the island. And then you're going to get back on a boat again at the end of the game. Um, there's about 14 or 13 spaces on the board. And the way that it works is each one of those spaces is symbolizes a kind of drafting round. Okay, Drafting meaning players taking turns to collect stuff. So the real game is the personal player board you have in front of you, which is a grid full of all empty slots for memories you could make on your trip to Sumatra. <laughs> you could meet people, you can hike volcanoes, you can see animals and plants. The see- grid of memories. I mean, <laughs> Matt, it's going to get that- so much weirder. <laughs> I mean, I just, that, I'm, I like this because that's what I do when I go on holiday. I have an Excel spreadsheet, which I filled with <laughs> clip art. And as I go, I can I can uh, highlight boxes yellow as I fill out my memory. Honestly, this do is, not know how this accurate is so this is close to the, to the game. game. Oh. <laughs> okay, so the, to be fair to the game, it's not a grid of memories; it's a journal, and all the things you're drafting are little tokens with pictures of what you've seen. Um, so you like you t- take a picture of a tiger and you put it in your journal, and then you've got a ti- <laughs> tiger memory. Look, the point is. That all of these things you're collecting score in different ways. Okay, so for example, um, you uh, an easy one would be sort of like uh, trinkets and and local crafts um, which you can collect, and then the more of those you get, the more points it gets. But everything scores differently. So animals and vegetation score in pairs, and they all have point values, but each pair scores the point value of the higher thing. So if you see a tiger or a toucan, you know something really cool, and then pair it with a really dull plant, that pair will score for the cool animal you've got. So you're trying to do this weird tourism of like seeing a really impressive plant or animal and then trying to see something really dull quickly. So it's still like a good day. Um, <laughs> but mechanically, the way the drafting works is is also pretty interesting. Um, so you, oh, I, I'm not going to go into exactly how this works, but basically each spot on the board has some stuff you can see. So like, you know, you show up at the first clearing in the game. It's like, it's got a tiger and a plant and a person you can meet and a handicraft and some equipment you can get. Um, and a and volcano. Then a, and a volcano, which represents a hike. Thank you, Tom. Okay, okay. You can go and visit a volcano, yes. Which is interesting because you can decide to visit the volcano by collecting the token, which may or may not be a disaster because you can choose to visit a volcano before you have any equipment for that volcano. So then you're, you've like, you know you're going to have to hike a volcano at the end of your holiday, but <laughs> you need to make sure you get the equipment somewhere between now and then. Um, which is a bit like how I actually go on holiday. Um, but the drafting is is where this gets really funky. So each space on the board has an arrangement of stuff you can see there. So, you know, you arrive at a place and it's got all this stuff and Tom goes and looks at a, a corpse, pl- corpse flower and I talk to a man. But then um, at, at any point in the draft, you can say, actually, I'm done here. I, I don't really want anything else. I'm going to take a step forward. So rather than taking a new cool thing, you just advance further into the island of Sumatra. Now, if your turn starts um, when you're the only when you're sort of in a new area, 
all the stuff that everyone was drafting in the previous location gets junked. You take it all and move it to the other side of the board where it's inaccessible, which we'll get to later because it's you can access it, but in a very funny way. Um, and so the game is really deciding when you're done with drafting and you're it's either you hike or you draft. Either you hike forward to refresh the pool of stuff you can collect or you sort of stay behind to hoover up more of this stuff, but that means you'll, you're going to have to hike to catch up with the group later. Does this make sense so far, Matt? Yes. Okay. It's like a real holiday. Yes. So now I'm shut up. Now I'm going to describe how the internet works in this game because it's the best. (laughs) So at the start of the game, some of the tokens in the game are already available in what's called the known information pool, which is basically the easiest way to understand it is stuff you can Google, right? So it's like, uh, like you might not need to go and see a toucan personally because you can just Google it. There's like, you know, (laughs) some buildings you can kind of Google. The manual doesn't actually say Google, but The reason I say Google is because the way players can access this huge and growing pool of known information, because when players hike on from a given spot, all of the the tiles that nobody's collected yet get dunked into this huge growing known information pool. If you collect a GPS, if you collect signal and a phone, for every phone and signal tile you collect, you can take one tile from the known information pool. So basically, if you manage to, in your holiday, get access to the internet, you can Google anything you want and it goes into your memories. <laughs> I really well, like this is, the fact that... This is weird. <laughs> a few times it happened where, like, I would, like, go forward knowing that you wouldn't take the thing because I was like, oh, yeah, I know there's a tiger back there, but I'll just Google it later. It's fine. <laughs> like, the idea that, that you'd pass not- up on that opportunity is just so funny. Is yeah, this, it's, is this the, actually framed as being like a holiday thing, though? Is it, or is the framing different? No, it's it's literally like you've visited the island of Sumatra and you're going to try and fill your journal with as many amazing memories as possible. Wow! And actually, one of the way, one of the ways that it is, um, it, uh, one of the wonderful bits of theme when you're leaving an area and you're saying, "I don't want to draft any of these tiles. I want to I want to refresh the pool," and you want to force the flow of the game onwards. The one situation in which you are not legally allowed to hike onwards is if there's a tile with a person on, so someone you can actually meet. So mechanically, you can always be like, I'm done with this area, unless there's someone who's like, hello, and then you're like, because you have to stay, someone has to talk to them. It doesn't have to be you, but if there's someone there that means you can't advance, you can be like, oh, fine, I'll go and look at that tree. And then you take the tree and someone else is like, fine, I'll talk to the person. Um, It's just, it's fascinating. It's like this whole mechanic of like, you know, I I don't want to... I don't want to go and look at the tigers. I'm just going to look at a picture of... Why can't I just look at a picture of a tiger on my phone instead? It's like, it's a game about holidays designed by a teenager who doesn't want to be on holiday. <laughs> it's just, it's so weird. To, to be completely fair to the game, the way I've taught it is e- by far the easiest way to understand it. But I think the way the manual wants you to interpret it... And by the way, it's a horrible manual. I had real trouble learning it. Um, not horrible, but bad. Um, but the way that I think introduces it is like, some stuff is on the island, but you can't find it. So you have to get GPS ah, signal okay. to hike off into the wilderness to find it. That but makes more sense. Sort of. Honestly, if you were playing this game, you would find it easier to internalize that you are Googling stuff. Um, <laughs> anyway, so Tom, you weren't so hot on this. I think I'm, I'm energetic and excited because I really like the concept. I thought it was interesting. I've not played a game quite like this. I quite like the theme, honestly, because as much as it's a ridiculous holiday, I think it is also a love letter to Sumatra and it has that lovely thing you get in Feast for Odin and Uwe Rosenberg games where you can look up and learn about all the little different things you can collect in the game in the back of the manual. Oh, that's fun. It that's does look cool. very pretty. It does look very pretty. It's nice looking. It's nice looking. It's quite uh, it's published by. 
yeah, the publishing from Ludanova is nice. It's not gorgeous, but it's it's. We a, can disagree, it's a Tom. It's you're allowed to. Well, <laughs> this is the thing. It's 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 nice, right? Like, do you want to play it again? Like, I I would turn down. I'd turn it down. I'd be like, yeah, there's other stuff. Like, it's fine. It's so fine. If I sh- if I showed up at someone's house and they had Sumatra set up, and I wouldn't be like, I'm not playing. This. No, but I would play I, it quickly. I, yeah, so we can move on to other stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I, I just want to give credit to Ryan Ignizia here, really, because, um, I mean, who, I, I don't know, it's just the fact that the man right now is revisiting his old classic designs, but also still pushing the envelope and trying to do clever and interesting stuff. Um, I think it's neat. I feel like as, as experimental games go, I think it, it probably lands where Mariposas does. You know, it's like, it's good. I like how interesting it is. It simulates what it's doing kind of well, sort of, aside from all the places where it's ridiculous. Um, yeah. I, it, it's like, I don't think though, like any of it felt interesting. I don't think any of it felt intriguing or, or pulled me into it any more than just like, I'm taking some tiles, I'm getting points. Like we played it at two player where I thought it would be like as, as bitey as it could possibly be. Right. But like, yes, did, I never felt like denying you something was ever as good an investment as just taking me something good. So almost That's every correct. turn it was like, I'm going to this place. <laughs> It felt kind of rote. It was like, I'm just taking this thing because it's good for well, me. I don't and wanna, I'm moving on. I don't want to go on holiday with Tom. As he's like, <laughs> I deny you these memories of this holiday. <laughs> you will not have them. But it fits at such, think- such a weird sort of like weight slash like time investment where there's exciting stuff you can play in the same number of uh, in the same number of minutes. You can get a better holiday playing a different game. Uh, like it, it's a filler I, game, but I with none ha- of the like excitement of a good filler is like that would be. I think my I would line. have more fun googling Sumatra than playing this game, <laughs> like because there is some super cool stuff there, and like I didn't realize that Sumatra's home to like I don't know if you you two know about the corpse flower, but there's actually a variety of corpse wildlife in Sumatra, <laughs> plants that smell so legendarily bad that um to like drive away predators. It did. Yeah. It, it, maybe the game is a corpse flower. That drove Ooh. me away. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, the last thing I'll say on it is that it's a game that takes as long to teach as it does to play, I think, or near as damn it. And I think that's bad. The next game on today's delicious roulade of a podcast is Maglev Metro, a game designed by Ted Olsback. And what is this game? Well, Maglev Metro is a game of building. Drum roll. That was a drum roll, not a butterfly. Don't confuse <laughs> the two. Um, it's a game of building metro links across cities. And what cities? I hear you scream. Well, multiple cities. You've got Manhattan. You've got Berlin. Um, whilst I was playing this with Tom, I kept singing, first we take Manhattan, then we take Berlin. And because he's young, he didn't get the reference. I didn't understand. Anyway, um, yeah, it's a very, very famous song. Anyway, <laughs> this game has different cities you can play on, but don't be alarmed and thinking, well, that sounds boring. Why would I want to create a Metrolink uh, connections in a city that already exists? Because dun, 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 you're living in the future. This is a future in which everything runs beautifully with magnetic levitation metros. That's what the name is. Now, these are fast trains that go around and there's nothing really that is conveyed by the game that makes you feel like you're using magnetic 
trains or using anything other than normal trains, really. The kind of gimmick of the box, uh, which admittedly I might have more love for if I played it in real life versus on, you know, digital versions of the game uh, because of social distancing, pandemic, etc., is that the hexagon tiles you're going to be putting down on these maps to create these uh, train lines from stations to stations are made of a kind of plasticky acetate material, which means that they've designed it quite neatly so that players can overlap each other for the first time in hex laying <laughs> train <Whoa>. game <laughs> history. And I got to say, it's, it's pretty neat. They've designed it so that the four different colors of players have their lines, like, like metro lines, in different positions on the tiles, which means you can put all four of them. You can literally have all four people running a metro line down the same sections, um, which is cool. That's a cool thing, right? I like that. That's a neat idea. Yeah. Um, the nature of the game itself is kind of weird. The most futuristic element of it is the fact that you've got robots. Now, you've got three flavors of robots. You've got bronze ones, silver ones, and gold ones. And none of which are any better than each other to a massive degree. They're just sort of are. Um, and then it's there's a bit of kind of worker placement on your board to a degree. Now, the way it tends to work is you have all of these different kind of, I'm going to call them stats, as if, as if your train company <laughs> is a, a character. But the way it works is at the start of the game, you have all of these different things, like actions you can do, like building or um moving a train or having people board a train or having people get off a train those are two different stats i should point out and at the start of the game you have kind of a point in stuff as standard but then you can level up stuff so you could be like hey now i've got all these robots i can get four people onto my train and then like you know i can't i can only get one person off a train at a time but then i can <laughs> if i want to i can get loads of robots to then make it so i can take four people off a train in a turn um and there's some neat mechanics in the fact that one of the things you can do as an action is reordering which allows you to kind of basically move your robots around to different parts of your board so basically you have these different stats that allow you to do different actions better and if you want one of your actions is you can rejumble this up a bit and there's some rules about different types of of robots can go in different types of places so you might need you know um bronze robots to be good at one of the stats and then you're looking around the board thinking well where can i get more robots and you get them by literally delivering them so you know you'll see oh well there's a there's a bronze robot on that station over there I'm going to go and build a build a line to that station, and then I can get that bronze robot, etc. So hang um, on, sorry, this is a game where you're <laughs> delivering robots, not people. Wow. Well, no, because you you do get people, but you have to <laughs> you have to. It's such a weird game. You have to get the capacity to build stations that that you can deliver that kind of person to. So. <laughs> Right. Oh, God, it's so weird. So really the way it works is as soon as one player can, for example, deliver the pink humans, because you've got pink humans, mauve humans, red humans, and purple humans, um, which are ostensibly in the game different types of buildings and different types of kind of things. Um, and so you guys, okay, well, this, this pink person wants to go over to a pink station. Um, they will start 
being pulled out of the bag as soon as somebody can can ostensibly deliver humans they will be added to the mix of things that you can pull out and place on the board as potential passengers but the start of the game it's just robots there's no people (laughs) it's just robots everywhere um and then gradually by delivering these robots every time you deliver something you can put it on your board and there's an interesting element of having it be like well you know when i put this little robot slash human on my board do i want to put it in a slot that's going to unlock something new like work towards unlocking an extra action or unlocking the capacity to get better skills or unlocking the capacity to um unlock new types of passengers to deliver or do i want to put them on the right hand side of my board where it's going to work towards end of game scoring stuff and it's it's fine I mean, honestly, like it, it was quite a fun little thing. I didn't feel um, it, it's it's an odd thing. And the fact that it does feel kind of weirdly futuristic, um, but the theming doesn't really lean into that. You know, the, the, the theming of this idea of futuristic trains doesn't go any further than you've got cool elastic tiles. That means you can both build a train line in the same space. Um, so it just means it's a less bitey than usual um there is interaction comes from people delivering passengers that one another were planning to deliver yes basically that's the interaction is somebody being like going and nicking all of the passengers from a spot where somebody else was going (laughs) to grab them from um but then having also being like oh well i'm gonna make it so i can deliver purple passengers and no one else can so it was it was kind of fun but i felt like it was lacking in some regards, especially, you know, that they, 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 there was a really neat idea, you know, the, the use of the acetate lines and the bright, colourful nature of that. Um, there was some really fun stuff there. But I just feel like the production qualities outside of that um, could have leaned in a bit harder. You know, it's cool having these shiny little metal robot uh, meepily characters and it's cool having these overlaying things. But it didn't feel sleek enough to to pull it off outside of it feeling like a gimmick and it did just feel like another train game um in not in a bad way i like train games but as you've probably worked out like it's there's a strange flow to it that that ostensibly i guess it's like building up an arm robots to build a network and then having people come onto it but it's just weird it's very weird it raises more questions than it answers when you describe it basically (laughs) Looking at a picture and hearing you describe it, honestly, I'm I'm quite excited by it. The acetate train laying looks cool. Leveling up your sort of company to be able to do more stuff on the turn sounds cool. And then with all of these places that you're delivering, I'm looking at a picture, you can deliver people to like embassies and studios and stores and offices. Um, do players build those things and decide where they are? Yes. I, I think well, there's something that like maybe Matt and I played it on the Manhattan board, which was the beginner board or the, the, the one they recommend you play first. The Berlin board, which is the one that I'm looking at at the moment, I think still thematically maybe doesn't quite clip together because it, it's a weird teach because it's like, yeah, you deliver robots to stations because they need to go to robot work and then you put people into the trains afterwards thematically still is kind of strange um but i think one thing that's really important to note is that your train is a piece that sits on that metro line and it can only turn around when it gets to the end of the line um Mm. oh interesting although you can uh one of the skills you can spec into is can you turn around (laughs) (laughs) that was really funny um but on the manhattan board that doesn't 
it, that doesn't come up quite as often because there's this space called the hub or something like that where yes. all of the robots come to meet um in one place and that acts as a space where you can always turn around in and you can kind of use that as your central point that you sprawl outwards from whereas the berlin you can also board, deliver you can deliver any kind yes, of robot there. yeah it doesn't matter so then the which obviously then the berlin board doesn't have it has these individual spaces for for where your robots are gonna um turn up and where you have to deliver them to and that completely changes the way that you look at the game because no longer can you sort of turn around more easily you have to sort of make a loop and then once you've made your loop you decide when to break it to add new things into it it was i think that i missed out we missed out on a lot by not playing on the berlin board and that's why i'm excited to play it again you well, you bring me round to my the, the next thing of my of my mid uh, podcast opinion turnaround <laughs> in the fact that I do think that this game was one that has been particularly hampered by playing a digital version of it on mm. uh, Tabletopia. Um, in the it, fact that I don't think the art assets are much to look at, but. I think the actual production of it is interesting, and I think that this is something whereby. Rather than our experience of balancing little uh, uh, fictional pieces atop a solid uh, plastic digital car, in the actual game itself, you've got these little trains that the little people actually slot into. The boards themselves are not just spaces. They are actually like um, indented cardboard. So you're actually going to be physically slotting in little pieces into the different parts of the board to unlock things. And I feel like actually... Um, a lot of the physicality in this game could actually be super exciting. And it is interesting just looking through the images again, the fact that like I did not have any excitement about the process of putting passengers on the board, but then seeing the actual physical cardboard of it and seeing that they actually fit into slots again, um, every time I see that, it reminds me, I'm like, ooh, ooh. So I feel like there's there's some, some feel good and some interesting stuff within this. I just feel like this is a game because of its physicality. It's particularly um, was uh, kind of kicked in the shins by the digital nature of it. So yeah, I mean, it's definitely I'm, I'm with you, Tom. Like, I think I, it's a game I definitely, I wasn't super excited by, but I do definitely, um, if it was set up on a table to use our thing, I'd, I'd definitely be up for it. And I think that it could be it could be quite exciting. So I think definitely one to look at with physical hands. <laughs> Cherie, don't like it. Fleet the dice game. A roll and write tabletop experience where you're fishing with boats. And in the box, there are dice, there are sheets, there are components for a solo mode. There are pens provided by Quinton Smith. Uh, that may not be in everyone may, else's copy of Fleet the Dice Game. It's amazing you managed to get into uh, Eagle Griffin's uh, publishing production house and just sneak a load of Quinton Smith brand pens into the boxes before they noticed. I'm a master, what can I say? Like a little Santa. Uh, it's not a master of Fleet the Dice Game, though, because you beat me. I did! I won! I felt very good about it. Uh, this is a game from Eagle Griffin Games. It's designed by Ben Pinchback and Matt Riddle. Uh, and it's a roll and write. And what's a roll and write? It's a game where everyone rolls a shared pool of dice and then uses the results of those dice to write onto their personal board. And what's the theme? It's a game where you play as fish that have got enough money together to buy lots of boats so they can go on lavish ocean <laughs> cruises together. It's not and true. And whoever takes the most <laughs> fish on the most cruises wins the game. It's not. Who, oh, who no, I, I tell a lie. That memories. is exactly what happens. <laughs> who 
who can get the most memories in their memory grid. <laughs> uh, what's different about this roll and write, though? I hear you ask. You've got two sheets to roll and write on, making it twice <laughs> the fun for you and some friends to play together, especially if you like fishing and efficiency. Ha! <laughs> Uh, there's 10 rounds of the game and each round involves rolling some dice and using their faces to tick boxes on a big sheet full of them to get points. That was very bad teach. Um, essentially, the game has three key phases. The first of which is the boat phase where you roll boat dice and pick one of their faces which will have fish on them, which really made me laugh. Uh, and then you then fill a box in the corresponding columns. So if I roll a shrimp, I will write a shrimp so i'll fill in a little shrimp box uh, and some of the boxes in that column might cause me to either launch a shrimp boat or gain a shrimp license or choose which of those that i get and if you launch boats which are also little spaces on your roll and bite boards those spaces will gain fish in the fishing phase and each fish is worth a point and boats are also worth points at the end but the licenses give you spooky and weird powers that go off throughout the game like gaining money when you launch boats uh, or gaining money when during the income phase or changing the faces of dice. We'll talk about money later. There's just a lot in this box. Like Quinn's going to test the fact that there's so many systems. I just need to say that like, I'm outrageously excited about this. (laughs) Oh, Matt, Matt, Matt. I want to heard the half of it. (laughs) Matt, this game is easily in my top. I think if I had to name my top three roll and rights, it would be like Railroad Inc., maybe Welcome to, but definitely this. I think What's it called? Lords of Shrimp? Lords of Shrimp? Lords of Shrimp. Lords of Shrimp, Shrimp, the dice game. Lords of Shrimp. The dice game. Uh, the dice yes, game. Yes, that's the one. The, I'm going to buy this gonna buy right, right now. now. <laughs> Live purchasing. Read out your credit card information as you do it. Um, I can't find a game called Lords of Shrimp. <laughs> uh, that's, that's weird. Uh, Tom, what's the second phase in the game after the, the boat phase? There's a little intermediary phase called the fishing phase where you get your fish on your launched boats. Uh, so that only happens on even rounds. So if you've got loads of boats out, they all draw in fish. And then you have a harbor phase where you roll a different set of dice to fill in boxes in your harbor, which is the second of your little roll and write sheets. And there are loads of buildings to choose from there. And they're all weird. Uh, they're like strange little upgrades that shape the game. So Quinns, I remember you went quite hard on Captain's Club, which lets you have private fishing phases all oh, to yourself. the best, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm going fishing. Oh, cool. Are we going fishing? No, nope. I'm going fishing. Uh, just me. Uh <laughs> And I went down uh, the seafood buffet route, <laughs> uh, where yep. if I collect enough fish, then I'll have a fully staffed buffet that'll get me loads of points. Because, huh? Then what else? You can invest in banks and markets <laughs> and uh, the pub. <laughs> the pub, yep. Uh, uh, like it's just there's so much. I mean, actually, I had I've had something I've wanted to say that I've been sat on for the last few minutes. This is a rolling right game with the most rolling and the most writing. <laughs> and like very true. And that, I think, does summarize what it's like to play. Yeah, it's like that was I kind of I think I've covered most of the basics. Like you basically just you roll dice to do fishing, you roll dice to do harbor stuff and you do that back and forth until the game ends and whoever has the most points at the end wins. So it's a straightforward like concept. It's easy to hang off, but there's so much like weird little gubbins and strange little bells and whistles that you can just play around with in it that it's just like this mad like I think in the newsletter uh, I talked about the fact that it's like a McDonald's saver menu of a roll and write. Like you can just have oh, yes. everything in this game. Um, like there's so yeah, many it's, I think, you know, it's mad. God, what was it? It's like, you know, you can, I could have a fishing phase. No, sorry. I could have a boat phase, which, uh, wait, let me get this right. 
we have a fishing phase. Mm-hmm. So I get to fill in all the fish on my entire fleet of boats. I had like 10 boats. I even had <laughs> canoes from local indigenous people who were fishing for me as well. It's another thing you can get on the harbour board if you fancy it. And so much of this game is if you fancy it. It's like, what do you want? Um, but, but then whatever you get, you're going to have just these absurd sort of combos. Everything pops off everything else. So in this fishing phase, first off, I have to fill all my boats with fish. Then, because I have a special COD license, I get money from uh, every fishing phase. So I fill in the money track. The money track does nothing aside from every like fifth coin you get lets you fill in a box anywhere. <laughs> so then, so let's recap. I'm getting my fish. I've got my money. After filling in the money, I've hit a star. The star lets me fill in the captain's club. The captain's club gives me a private fishing phase so that I've, all my boats get filled with fish again. I get more money. Like, so, like, Matt, you've, you've talked about very uh, intelligently about how one of the joyous things about Welcome 2 is the different kinds of pencil sort of uh, mm. lines you do. You know, you circle things, you draw lines, you hatch stuff, um, you do check boxes. Uh, Fleet the Dice game doesn't have any of that. Fleet the Dice <laughs> game is you're going to be filling in boxes. How many boxes? Literally hundreds. <laughs> and All it's of like, them. yeah, and it's. And it's great. A lot of roll and write designs now, I think, are trying to reach for that medium and heavyweight roll and write design, you know, whether that's like Roman roll, which of course isn't really a roll and write, or like Welcome to Dino World. You know, people are trying to like put more rules into roll and writes. And playing Fleet the Dice game, which is an old game, made me think that might be wrong. Because I think how you get more and bigger with roll and writes is just giving people more stuff to, to hatch and, and, and to scribble on with pencils. I don't think you need more rules. I think you need more rolling and you need more writing. <laughs> In my humble opinion, because Your the dice game is the most fun thing I've... I, I, I think this game is great. Yeah, well, I am still trying to buy it. Um, <laughs> Shrimp the dice game. Although I will point out, I will point out that my Google for... Actually, I'm not using Google as, um, as Quinns makes fun of me. I think I'm using DuckDuckGo. Um... <laughs> Because you're a better person than the rest of us. <laughs> no, I just it's better for image searching. Anyway, it was the seventh result. Fleet the Dice King was the seventh result on Lords of Shrimp. The <laughs> <Dice> <laughs> <game>. <laughs> really? So, yeah, I did find it. So there we go. I did. In terms of how nonsensical this game is, by the way, the first power you get, if you if you were to just you know just go for shrimp, like simplest first thing, it's the upper leftmost thing on your sheet. The first. Uh, sort of rule tweak you get from a shrimp license is you can turn shrimp into any other kind of fish. <laughs> like, absolutely no care going to theme whatsoever. It just wants you to have fun, and it's so good at providing that fun. Sorry, Tom, I cut you off. What were you going to say? I think the, I think one thing that I like about it is that it, it's so extravagant, but it ramps, like, so satisfyingly up so that near the end you feel a bit like, like, well, my work here is done. You know, like, yeah. by the end of the game, you feel like you've filled in, like, enough. <laughs> You're full from Fleet the yeah. Dice game. It's um, like, you know, ordering Dirty Fries or something, where it's like, you might think, you know, you want more, but it's like, no, by the time you finish this, you'll have had your fill. Right, of, absolutely. You know, fill again. And, and, and yeah, you, we, we forgot one of um, the most important things in, in the whole game, which is that there's this nice little rub that normally in a roll and write, you roll the dice and then everyone gets the same results. There's a little twist there that when you roll the dice, you actually pick one for yourself your opponent picks one and the middle one is shared, which is just this nice, like very simple little layer on top of the purely shared nature of the dice in most roll and rights. And and yeah, you, and it's a- it widens the gaps in in strategy between the two of you. Like admittedly something nice about roll and rights where you use the same results to different ends, like floor plan or something. Like it's cool seeing how people interpret exactly the same dice, but it fits what the game is is going for, I think. Which is a roll and right where everything is kind of huge and soupy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's just, I don't know. It's like, 
I, I keep coming back to this. There's so much to fill in. There are so many little boxes. <laughs> I think like while you say you have two sheets of paper, that doesn't get across um, how the pieces of paper are almost entirely white check boxes. <laughs> like they're everywhere. And the next roll and write we're going to talk about Troy's dice. You know, it's simply it it's it it simply doesn't have as much of your sheet dedicated to stuff you what, you know. What is it about? Shade. Like, I think it's because we played that. Do you remember that? What was it called? Oh, uh, um, Champions, Champions of the, of the Shrimp. That's yeah. it. Champions of the Shrimp, Captains of the Gulf, very similar. Um, but what is it about? There's a game, and all you need to say is like you got boats and shrimp, and I'm like my ears perk <laughs> up. I, I don't I don't know what it is. It's just it's it's like catnip for me. I will. I, I will say one thing that the, the the only mark I have almost against Fleet the Dice game is I actually looked it up earlier because I thought I might get myself a copy because I've been playing a lot of Roll and Write solo because I'm you know really cool. Um, and it, it's <laughs> it's forty five quid at the moment in the UK, which is a what that that's 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 absolutely I price gouging. Don't... It's not supposed to be sure. that price. Okay, yeah, okay. I think I'm looking into it and it seems to be a pre order thing at the moment gotcha. because. Um, there's a second edition coming out soon, I think. And oh, this is, be... So our review copy is part of the... It's like an early advanced copy of the new reprinting. Gotcha. But I don't know. Eagle Griffin is not always, I don't think, the greatest at making sure there's lots of their stock available in Europe. Um, well, you can get Fleet, the collectible card game. <laughs> the collectible so, card game? I think... Uh, well, I, I don't Fleet, know. The, I mean, it's just, it's just the card game, I think. Fleet standard. Yes, yeah, Fleet is... It's being I mean, labelled badly by this website, but yes, it's just Fleet. And what's that like, hey? It, we, uh, Paul and I played it way back in the day. Uh, it's all right. It's fine. It's not as good as Fleet the Dice Game. It's like certainly not like... You heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, you did. Uh, Mic drop. But this wasn't the only Roll and Write game we played. We also played something that a lot of people have been very excited to get their hands on. Troy's Dice, or Trois Dice, if you want to be annoying about it. Um, <laughs> this is designed by uh, Sebastien Dujardin, Xavier Georges, uh, and Alain Aubin. Uh, who were, the, I believe, the designers of Troy's, or Troy, um, which is a very, very well-liked Euro game that Matt and I reviewed a while back. Um, absolutely great game of drafting dice, of which represent either soldiers or the clergy or merchants, um, and then putting them to work in your section of the town of Troy's, or Troy. Um, so Troy's dice people were excited by because it's the designers, because it's a roll and write, and it's maybe kind of like Troy's or Troy. And... <laughs> It's. I, I'm just going to say it. If you removed all of the art assets, which are from Troy's, um, you would not know this was a Troy's game. Like the only thing it has in the in a similar way is you still have dice of different color, which are you know red, yellow, and white, representing these different classes of people in the city, and then you use them to sort of construct buildings on your roll and write sheet. But it's not really like Troy's at all, and there is absolutely no player interaction whatsoever. Playing this with one player is identical to playing it with 100 players, um, which is maybe what some people are looking for, but will potentially be disappointing. All of that said, all of that disappointing stuff out of the way, this game's good. It's good. It's a good game. It's good. We enjoyed it a lot. And I think I definitely, I don't know if it's in my, it's certainly not to me more fun than Fleet the Dice game, but it is, it, it's still good in its own way. What were your impressions, Tom? If... And then I will probably actually explain how it works. <laughs> It feels strange to compare uh, the two because, yes, like they're kind of. I think that 
Fleet has a sort of tactile instant gratification, but I feel like I'd have mastered it as much as I realistically could after like 10 plays maybe because it's just mm-hmm. this mad buffet of options and it's it's more of just a exercise in excess to some extent. Yes, um, yes. Whereas Twat or Troy's uh, dice, <laughs> um, I feel like the learning curve would be steeper and like, no, not steeper, more like very, hold on, I can't, do a graph audibly just describe the graph the, oh, oh okay i know actually perfect of course the, you can the graph for fleet would go like this Whoop. and the graph for troys would be like <laughs> you know i'm glad that you worked out that you could do an audible graph because mm. i would be very disappointed if you just moved on from that yeah that, that was, was wonderful well, that was great Thanks. that was great okay, okay so uh, in troys dice um each round you are going to uh roll uh, four dice, which are just d6s, the six-sided dice, and then you arrange them by the numbers they've rolled. So, you know, uh, you're going to put a six at the sort of top of the sort of circular track in the middle of the board. And if you roll a one or a two, that might be at the bottom. Um, but one of these dice is going to, one of these dice is the sort of black dark dice, which is going to have consequences for everybody later. So really you're picking one of three dice um, on your turn. Um, and there's, they're going to be one of three different colors, probably, um, because there's some really funky stuff. The dice are actually translucent and you place them on um, coloured pieces of cardboard to show what colour oh, they are. Yeah, yeah, I remember this in the news, in the games yeah. news games on shutupandsitdown.com. Oh, nice plug. Um, the point is that dice, <laughs> I love it. The point is that the high dice, the high number dice are better potentially, but you have to pay gold for them and the lower number dice you don't. But anyway, you're going to pick one of these dice you want and then you either take it for its resource value. So I just talked about needing uh, coins, right? Gold. Um, so that comes from the yellow dice. So if you draft a yellow four, you're going to get four coins. If you draft a white six, you get six Bibles. Um, and Bibles are used to change the type of dice. Mm-hmm. And then alternatively, you can uh, get red things, which are soldiers. If you draft a red three, you're going to get three. Oh, what was it, Tom? Do you remember? I do What is remember. the red resource? Okay, oh, red flags, soldier flags. stuff. Flags, there you go, for soldier stuff. <laughs> um, and then flags are what you use to increase the numbers of dice. So you can use uh, white and uh, red sort of resources in tandem to change the color of the dice and change the number. Why are you doing any of this? It's because you're trying to build buildings. So um, each class of person, goodness me, this is hard to teach without visual cues, <laughs> um, build, offers two kinds of buildings. So if you draft the red soldiers, number one to six, you can build buildings one to six, which for the red soldiers are either forts or some less important population. Hotels. Building. Hotels, fine. Mm-hmm. Basically, every... Oh my goodness, this is tough. Every color of uh, person uh, enables you to build a special uh, building of their type, and then also gets you pop or get you population of that person, which is basically victory points. I'm I'm gonna just skip straight to the exciting part of this. About 25% of the way through the game, that black dice I talked about starts burning your sheet down. <laughs> so if you roll a if you roll a uh, if the black is a three and it ends up on a yellow um sort of thing meaning it's a sort of a black yellow that means the yellow building of number three that you have if you haven't built it yet it's destroyed and you can never build it so it's a roll and write game where you are trying to build these buildings and do all this funky stuff to get loads of points but where segments of your sheet aren't just being filled in by you they're being destroyed by the game so by the end of the game you can expect 25 percent or half of your sheet to have just been wrecked uh, by the game which considering you might be going for different score multipliers 
to not get too into it, basically you build cathedrals, which then give you victory points for other kinds of buildings. So if you build the fortress cathedral, you get points for your fortresses. And fortresses are the special red building you can choose to build, which I don't think get you victory points, or certainly get you much. But fortresses protect that entire number from being destroyed. So if you build a fortress four, and then later on in the game you get the black four, which would destroy one of the four buildings, your fortress actually keeps you safe. So, Troys is a game about trying to pursue victory points while managing resources. Well, Troy's the dice game. Or while managing resources. Game. Oh my god. Please <laughs> help. This podcast will never end. Uh, but you also make the decision of how risky you want to be. So in our game, I chose to build hardly any fortresses, and as a result, half of my sheet was burned down. Whereas Tom chose to be a lot more protective and build fortresses, which meant that he was more immune to this the, the ravaging black dice. Ooh, so that's a game. That's pretty good. You, you got that one down pat. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. Thanks. <laughs> what did you think? What did you think in play of Choice Dice? I really liked it. It was very good. I like the way you touched on it, where you have that in a lot of roll and write, it's all about progress and pushing forward and making your grid better and better and better. And I think that one of the lovely rubs of of Welcome to and Welcome to New Las Vegas, which I think I might enjoy a little bit more. I'll talk about that one on a future podcast, maybe. Although we actually we already talked about it on a podcast a while ago. But. Did you did you know that um, Welcome to Las Vegas, despite being a standalone game, says on the back of the box, "Do not buy this unless you've played Welcome to." Really? Yeah, I which because that. because they just believe it's the rules are so tricky and dense. They, they are quite dense. It's a bit of a bit of a jungle. Anyway, <laughs> um, those the one of the lovely things about that game is that the, as much as roll and rights are often like fleet, the dice game is a perfect dice uh, roll and write, which is about growing something about just getting more and more and more and more and filling in and filling in and writing and floor plans the same it's about filling as much of your board by the end it's just going to be this jungle of of stuff and i think that welcome to and twa dice both have the same thing where they're destructive as much as they are constructive um to have the game push back against you so that the net tightens as much as you're adding to it is so like juicy uh, as you're playing it although i did feel like the addition of those fortresses does nullify that quite a lot to the extent that I didn't really care about the black dice at all towards the end. Um, mm. And I guess maybe that's a point f- for the game in the sense that if you want to play a roll and write where you don't have to worry about your board being ebbed away and your possibility space is going to be as open as possible, just go for the fortresses at the risk of like handicapping yourself later on and and the possibility of... of cutting off scoring opportunities i had a weird thing because i enjoyed this a lot i thought i found that when those dice were rolled and having to decide which dice to take was a really interesting decision and then even when you decide that dice you can take it as resources or you can take it as a building or one of two different kinds of buildings that's all really neat i really liked the the fact that you can have so many of those resources um you know the flags and bibles and coins but then how and where you spend them is kind of it's a game that I think very much tricks you into being like, well, I can collect lots of resources, but then if you don't spend them, at the, if you haven't spent them by the end of the game, that's wasted turns mm. you've taken. And this game does not offer you many of those. Um, but equally, if you choose not to get enough resources, then you can really, really handicap yourself. I really like that. My concern, it's not a criticism because I would need to play the game more to um, to figure out whether this is true. Because it's a game with this black dice where you can sort of decide to protect yourself or not. I feel that I'm worried that if you chose to play it and just not protect yourself, then you may ruin your game because vital buildings to you will be burned down. But also because the dice land randomly, that just might not happen. So my concern with choice dice, if you're playing in a group of four, let's say 
two players choose not to protect themselves at all, one of them will probably get lucky and not really be hurt. And I've, I'm concerned that that player would just win because <laughs> what you're doing with building fortresses is mitigating risk, but it's only risk. It's not definitely bad. So is Troy Dice a game where, you know, players will take risks and randomly, literally randomly, that may or may not be bad for them. Meaning if players take risks and nothing bad happens, then they would win. Do you, does this make any sense? It sounds like that's just risk. Like as in what you're describing is just risk happening. Like, But in <laughs> such a short game, mm. in such a short game where, you know, it's not like ink and gold or something where you can take a risk and, you know, if you, if you screw up, then you've absolutely just lost the game. Right. You know, choice right. dice feels like, you know, you can take a risk and you might not lose the game, which means sort of trying to protect yourself from something bad may be happening to you is not the way to definitely win a score because by the time of by the time you've built all the fortresses you're halfway through the game already and yeah okay i see that yeah i get that because i suppose so you're you're much you're saying that like it's there's two ways you can protect yourself from the risk uh, either building the fortress or just building the building before it gets destroyed so by virtue of just building a lot of stuff you're protecting yourself against that risk naturally um, I yeah, I, I guess the way to explain it is if you imagine playing Troy's Dice with eight people, the winner of that game has to be the person who chooses to build no fortresses and just gets lucky. Right. Gotcha. You know, um, whereas if you play it with two. Or, so I guess maybe that and maybe that's maybe that's the design. You have to try and guesstimate based on the number of players how much risk you have to accept. <laughs> this in is, order this to is beginning win. to be like a bit like a maths puzzle. So, yeah. <laughs> let's let's leave this. Players on different trains. <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 tapping out. You know what? Let's leave this one to Jeff to people like Jeff Engelstein uh to, to try and tell us uh, mathematically whether I'm right or wrong and maybe let's uh, wrap up this pod beast in the traditional beast net. I've got the beast net ready and I'm re- ready and willing to wrap up this beast um which I'm just going to do it now. Whoa, yes, that's, that's a whole new noise. Yeah. Wrapped it up. It's done. That's the podcast. Thank you so much for listening to the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. We will be back in two weeks with another episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. Efficient. Thank you. I like it. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye bye bye. bye. bye.